we can kind of actually just kind of jump into it. So now I appreciate you joining. Oh yeah. Uh, no what, what do you see? What do you see happening there? So obviously, I mean, you're in Minnesota, in New York. We're not really in the winter yet. Um, yeah. I know you've written some great articles talking about you know the coming winter and like you say, outdoor dining and what do you see happening there in the restaurant sector? What's kind of your, your what do you see coming here in the few months? Um. Yeah, that's a good question because, uh, you know, I mean, like, look, ultimately the thing that really fixes restaurants is a vaccine and a treatment and, and uh, you know, at the, the end of, of, of the pandemic. Um, on one hand, I mean, we're, we're seeing higher infection rate, uh, infection numbers, total infection numbers than we've ever seen. Um, at the same time, I mean, consumers are clearly uh, frustrated with quarantine and, um, you know, are showing a willingness to eat at restaurants. I mean, there's cert it's cert certainly a certain number. I mean, it's reasonable to expect that in the next, you know, few months, you're, you're definitely going to see uh, a decline in those numbers in the Midwest and, you know, and, um, you know, the, the Northwest and in the Northeast, uh, where when the weather gets, you know, colder and people have to uh, move fully indoors. You're going to have people a lot more reluctant to um, to go out, um, and you know, consequently, delivery and, and takeout will remain important. I mean, it you know remains to be seen whether we'll see shutdowns. I don't think we're going to see the types of shutdowns we saw in the spring, which is good for the restaurant industry. Ultimately, people being able to go out to eat is what is driving the business. Uh, but that said, I mean, you know, you're still going to have reluctance on the part of a lot of Americans to go out. That's definitely true. Um, they're not going to be going out. <clears throat> they're not going to be working in the office uh, anytime soon. Uh, so that's another issue. Um, still not going to have the types of big events that uh, tend to drive a lot of restaurant sales. So, you know, you're still going to see a fairly depressed market for the next couple of months. And, um, you know, for a lot of the industry, they're kind of, you know, in bad financial shape, which... Uh, I wrote about this week. They're they're in 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 a you know many restaurant companies remain remain in a very difficult financial position, mm -hmm. and um, you know that's going to be the real big question mark going forward. I think that we're still going to see a lot of bankruptcies and a lot of issues where uh, restaurant companies have have some fundamental financial issues. What's the impact you think? I mean, you mentioned as far as the holidays. That's we got Thanksgiving coming up, and mm -hmm. it's normally the time of year where you'd have you know, family get-togethers, businesses, obviously hosting, you know, lunches or holiday meals, holiday dinners or special events. We're not really going to have that. I mean, we normally, as our office, we usually have a nice, you know, holiday party. I'm, I haven't heard anything. I assume we're not going to this year. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> I don't like anybody. Is. So, what, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you know, usually, you know, it's at some restaurant or somewhere that, you know, I don't know the bill, but it's not small. And, Mm -hmm. So that times thousands and thousands and thousands of places across the country. What do you, I mean, what's the impact on that? It's, um, it's yeah, I think it's going to be tough for certain, certainly for certain segments of, of, of this business again. Um, I mean, for, for a lot of higher end uh, restaurants, they, they really did a lot of pretty heavy uh, uh, business in the next couple of months, catering functions and things of that nature. Um, again, continued to be a depressed market. It's going to be really tough for them, um, you know, because, you know, these things aren't going to be held. I mean, I think the broader industry actually surprisingly will do a little better than you might imagine, simply because one of the things that's been a hallmark of this, uh, of, of, of the pandemic is that when there's been an event of some sort, consumers have 
celebrated in some form by getting restaurants. They've adapted to it. And a pr perfect example is Cinco de Mayo, uh, Mother's Day as well. Um, in many res restaurants during those holidays, when we were still really early, you know, still pretty uh, shut down throughout much of the country, people ordered m massive takeout orders um, on those certain holidays um, instead of going out. They still went and did something they just ordered takeout and they brought it at home. And so I think that you're probably going to see, in fact, you see a lot of restaurants already sort of gearing up for that idea is that, that people are going to adapt because they still like to celebrate by eating restaurant food. They still like to eat restaurant food. Right. That's really unquestioned. I mean, it, and they don't want to, maybe a big part of that is they don't want to make food either. Yeah, I mean, like you know, I mean, my family. I think that an underrated driver of the restaurant business and a really underrated driver is the dishes. Yeah. Not necessarily cooking. I think a lot of people are, I mean, a lot of people don't like cooking, right? But I think the dishes are, are one reason why, I mean, one really disincentive because it's a lot of work to, you know, right. to clean up after all of this. And, you know, and, uh, you know, so um, that tends to drive probably more restaurant sales than people imagine. Um, but, you know, and then they just still like celebrating and they don't like doing all that work. So I think so we'll probably see a lot of advertising coming up, you know, Thanksgiving packages and catering and Christmas yep. and Festivus and New Year's. and Oh, yeah. All We're already starting to see it, uh, already starting to see these yeah. things come forward. Um, companies really adapting um, to try to take advantage of that particular market. Thanksgiving is a surprisingly big uh, yeah. restaurant day. Um, always has been. That's going to be a real, you know, where that goes. Uh, probably going to shift the takeout again. I mean, I think on balance, you have to consider the holiday, upcoming holidays, really an overall negative for the overall industry because you're still not going to get those parties, uh, those functions um, that a lot of employers had and, and things of that nature. Uh, but you know, they'll 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 recover a surprising amount of it, and um, uh, you know, and then certain restaurants are going to do better. Out of curiosity, something I I haven't really seen written too, too much. And if I miss, if you wrote about it on this side, I'm sorry. You, a big part of that, so it's interesting, you talk about, you know, let's say you, you could even cover a significant portion of the in-person dining by takeout. But like you said, how, how important is the loss of the alcohol, like particularly the events, the alcohol sales, the, you know, the soda sales that are all just pure profit, I, I think. So, I mean, how, how critical is that? Because you're not- Very, very much critical. Yeah. It's a real- you know, and that's been the fundamental issue facing that facing a lot of casual diners going forward. And again, it tends to be more concentrated, a little bit more on the higher end places that really did rely more heavily on, on you know, on on beverages and particularly alcoholic drinks for a lot of their revenue. Um, and it is more, it is a higher profit, uh, higher margin item, um, and uh, doesn't quite take the effort that um, you know that cooking, say, a steak dinner does. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so that's always been an issue as the, you know, this industry has been moving towards more of a takeout function and, and casual dining restaurants, for instance, are just not really built for that. So that's been an issue where they've had to adapt. Um, I think a more, especially, you know, your Applebee's and your Chili's and companies like that have actually really adapted, you know, have been practicing for this for a while. So, you know, they might be in a little bit better shape than you think, but um, you know, it's still a significant loss of revenue uh, and you can't make it up. I mean, chains have tried alcohol delivery and things like that. You can't really make it up that well. Uh, you have to find other sources. And so, 
um, you know, as that dying in business drops again, I mean, that business drops and you, you just really can't make up for the profit. And on top of that, you know, delivery just doesn't, you know, I mean, you have a high cost associated with delivering food. Right. And so the profit margins on those are, are tend to be squeezed. Yeah, I mean, I know my family, we're getting to go a lot. Like we had Chili's the other night. We've done Miller's. We do a lot of really focus also getting a lot of the local restaurants in our area. And I kind of implore my family and my kids who are in college, like, get it, you know, go pick it up or have the, have the restaurant delivered. Don't, nothing against Uber Eats or DoorDash. I don't have anything against them. But from a restaurant sector, it really, I mean, it's far more profitable to the restaurant operator if you just get oh, yeah. it directly or have it, have them deliver it and don't go third party. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something yeah. I know I really focus on is just try to make it as profitable as I can for that restaurant. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting. We've seen now a number of restaurant chains have started, have started publicly acknowledging the profit challenges associated with the level of delivery they're doing. And Chipotle's done it. Uh, Noodles has done it. I think Fiesta Restaurant Group today did it. Um, they started saying, hey, look, these, the margins that we get on delivery orders are compressed. We have to deal with it. And so what they're doing is uh, raising, you know, more of them are raising prices on, on delivery orders. That's going to be a lot more common. Of course, the issue with that is you start raising your prices on delivery orders, you really start having some, um, you know, some, some challenges that way. Um, you know, profit becomes, you know, and, and, you know, because then, you know, you're going to, people are only going to pay so much. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've done this on, on chicken wings where I was paying 75, 80% premium for, for a delivery order than just to pick it up myself. And, you know, and I like chicken wings and I don't know if it's worth 80% to have it delivered to my home. It's not hard. Mm-hmm. Like I live five minutes away from them. I can go and pick it up. So I've never, um, so, I mean, it's going to be a, I think a real issue for a lot of restaurant chains going forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you just you had a one of the reasons we we kind of connected here today. You had a really really interesting article here recently. Actually, you cover the franchise sector, the you know, mm-hmm. it's large, you know largely the, the fast food, but you know certainly casual as well. Uh, you had a great article, the five problems in franchising that hurt franchisees, uh, that really caught my attention because like you, I'm involved with a lot of franchise operators, franchisees, franchisors, and you cover the sector as well as anybody out there. What do you see? I mean, you summarize kind of these five problems. What do you kind of summarize for us? What do you you see as the problem in the franchise sector and what kind of catches your attention? Well, the biggest problem is the way franchises are sold. Um, And, uh, you know, so, um, you know, in a franchise business and it's often lost, you know, companies such as, you know, uh, Subway, for instance. Subway doesn't really sell sub subway sells the right to use the subway brand that's what it sells it sells that right to other investors who they are the ones that take on the risk of building the restaurant and then operating the restaurant and it's the franchisee that is the one that's actually selling you the sandwiches and they just pay a percentage off the subway um the problem is that these are really complicated investment vehicles um it uh, it takes a lot to understand exactly, you know, what's involved in operating a restaurant. It is, um, it is in many cases, a very difficult job to do. Um, it is a, you are putting a lot on the line to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, these, you know, and the, the franchise agreement is extremely complicated. Everything is very complicated about it. And yet they get sold um, akin to, uh, how you buy a used car. Mm-hmm. 
um, and they get sold based on emotion. They get sold based on, um, you know, on this idea that you can uh, live the dream, live the American dream. They are sold to any, you know, and in the problem, now most franchisors want to survive over the long term. They have it, they have a long-term history in mind. They want to be a successful franchise, but you can get a lot of companies that want to grow very, very, very fast. And they think if they can sell a lot now, um, uh, they, you know, you know, they'll see how many of these can make. Well, the problem is that if you sell it, you know, a bad, a person who doesn't have uh, correct financing, who doesn't really have a lot of good experience, um, uh, you know, who really doesn't have a high net worth, um, or, you know, the franchise could just be a bad, super bad investment. Um, these people can go under and then they lose everything. So it's the way it gets sold that doesn't really treat it like the investment that it can, that it really is. That is one big, big problem. It happens in a lot of franchises. Uh, Quiznos is the penultimate example of a brand that did this, sold a lot of uh, franchises to um, a lot of different people, uh, built them everywhere. Um, and then the brand ran into problems and the whole thing collapsed and like thousands of people literally out of everything that they invested in that brand. So that's one. And which um, that is, and I guess it ties to that. I mean, the FDD, the Franchise Disclosure Docs, these are mm -hmm. really complex legal documents, long and lots and lots of pages. I mean, I often wonder how many franchisees have even read their FDD or even had an attorney perhaps do it. I mean, they're, these are complicated documents. I mean, they really yeah. are. I, I bet most folks have never even read them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 150, 200, 300 pages sometimes. Um, you know, and a lot of it is really just about disclosure and about protecting the franchisor um, from lawsuits as much as anything else. There's really little regulation behind it, which brings me to the next problem. You know, as problems happen in this business, in the franchise business, there's no real regulatory body um, that does anything about it. I mean, the FTC on a federal level regulates franchises, um, but all it really does is require they post this FDD and then they don't really do anything about it. They don't really enforce it. It's been a long time since the FDC enforced any franchise action. It gets left up to a small handful of states that are willing to do it. And vast majority of states don't uh, enforce franchise law, don't really have any unique franchise law. And so the only real, um, you know, the only real choice you have if you're a franchisee is, you know, is to file a lawsuit. That's the only way that these franchisors get regulated in any fashion problem of course is that you have to have enough money to be able to file a lawsuit well and then you know if you don't have the money you know if you've lost your investment you don't really have any money and when i i wrote the series on burger which is a fast casual burger chain that collapsed um you know i talked to a lot of franchisees that well would be franchisees that paid a lot that paid their entire life savings to for the right to buy into a brand and they didn't have any money even to talk to a lawyer even to talk to a lawyer and lost it all oh, with the yeah it's another, they lost another it horrible story right right so nobody is out there enforcing it and then you know which the next problem is because there's nobody enforcing it franchisors get a lot of leeway in dictating that relationship so um you can get a, a franchisor that will require a franchisee to litigate any dispute within another state so um um, you know, and the problem is if you're a franchisor, you know, franchisors will frequently sell these things all over the place. Mm -hmm. So um, I Heart Mac and Cheese, which is a Florida-based franchise that, um, that is having some real issues right now. They're in Florida um, and they were selling to people in Montana 
and then requiring them to litigate it back down in Florida. So, you know, and that means you have to have money to talk to a lawyer in Florida. You have to fly down there. You have to do all those other things. It's a much more expensive proposition. And so you get franchisors that do this, or they just write onerous franchise agreements because they can. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you know, making various requirements. They don't, um, if, you know, they can um, you know, write uh, provisions in their agreement that essentially, you know, that will require the franchisees to pay um, a lot of money. So a lot of franchisors are built to take as much money out of the franchisee as possible. Yeah. So not only do they get the upfront franchise fee and then the royalty payment, but then they'll also often take uh, a substantial profit off of the supply chain. So a, fran a franchisor will run the supply chain, buy the food and the paper and all that other stuff. And then franchisees are required to buy this. Um, no price. Right. And then the, what, what will happen is the franchisor to recoup their cost will write in a, you know, will will get rebates from, you know, Coca-Cola or US Foods or Cisco or whatever con company they contract with. Well, then, you know, those vendors will up the charges for franchisees. What ends up happening is that the supposed um, joint buying power for all of these franchisees gets completely wiped out. And it would be cheaper in some cases. In fact, in many cases, Quiznos, again, the penultimate example on this is that they went through the franchisor, had to go through the franchisor um, to do this. Franchisor wrote in, you know, took in enormous rebates. The franchisor, by the way, depended on those rebates to make money to pay off a massive amount of debt that they had. Um, and, uh, you know, and so it would have been cheaper for these Quiznos operators to just quit, start their own sandwich concept. Uh, and then they, they not only not have the 8% royalty or whatever, but then they don't have those higher charges for food. So it's not as cheap to operate a franchisor. So that's another one where you get franchisors that will really do this you just write in these onerous agreements that franchisees, again, getting back to that FDD, many don't really read or fully comprehend what's going on. Uh, it could be hard to see these situations down the road. Um, particularly if you're uh, a newbie just getting into the business, maybe mm -hmm. a recessionary type period where maybe they lost a job and they just see an opportunity here and they're not, they don't have, like you said, they don't have the restaurant experience or the business experience. They're just kind of getting into right. it as they, they see mm -hmm. an opportunity. Yeah, they just see an opportunity. Look, I mean, a lot of franchisees, you know, a lot of would-be franchisees just think, hey, I can be my own boss. I can get rich quick. Um, I could do it for next to nothing. I mean, we saw that with the Bergerim thing where just a lot of people thought, hey, I got 20, 30,000 extra dollars. Um, I'm seeing all these ads for this cool franchise. It's got to work. Um, I'm just going to, uh, you know, and then they, they get lured in by some slick uh, sales reps or some marketing materials and a, a cool looking restaurant and then they send in all of their money um, and then they end up having problems finding a site because a no landlord is going to give uh, you know somebody who spent all their savings on the franchise fee right. um, and is completely unqualified to operate the brand you know you know not a, you know landlords aren't stupid they're not going to um, you know sign these franchisees so you know you have situations, and this was a case of Nyhart Mac and Cheese, and it's certainly the case with Bergerum, where these companies could not get, these franchisees couldn't get leases. So that's another element, you know, that, you know, you get these people that sign on to this agreement because a franchisor doesn't care. They just want the $30,000 franchise fee. 
uh, and then the people can't get a location. I think I say this, I don't want to sound all negative because I think both of us <laughs> actually are really big believers in the franchise system. I mean, I, I've got a lot of clients and friends actually that have, have, have actually have generated tremendous income, wealth for them and their family. Sometimes, some instances, I mean, generational type. Mm -hmm. So there are some phenomenal franchisors and franchisees. Who do you think is doing, who are some, you know, a couple of examples that are doing it the right way? I mean, like Jersey Mike's, I think is one, I'm curious. Jersey Mike's is phenomenal. Comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, Jersey Mike's is phenomenal. Um, you know, that's one that really does it right. So I think um, really, and we're seeing this now in this, you know, this last number of months, seems to really, really care about their their franchisees, about their customers, about their, their you know, the folks that are involved in the brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what what Peter Canker has done over at, at Jersey Mike's is is really cool. I mean, he's he really does a lot of, you know, things. I mean, you, you really get the sense from him um, that he really wants people to do very well and has devised a brand that helps them accomplish that goal. And that's ultimately because he he understands and what what Jersey Mike has found Mike's has found and and look, they're one of the fastest growing restaurant chains in the United States. I mean, they have very done very, very well for themselves. And so have their franchisees. And franchising can really, really work when you have that alignment, when you have a franchisor that understands that they don't do well if their franchisees don't do well and are built towards helping their franchisees succeed. And that is super important if you are going to rely on small-scale operators. Um, that, uh, you know, have only a few handful, you know, you know, two, three, four stores at most. Um, and, uh, you know, really rely on those stores for, you know, for their living, you know, so, you know, and that's what they do well. That is what all the franchisors, you know, the good franchisors do really well. Another one is Culver's where, you know, they develop, largely develop the franchisees from within um, and, you know, uh, you know, the franchisees op operate only a small number of stores, but they make a really good living doing it. And it's a brand that performs very well. So, yeah, I mean, there are, it's, and then, I mean, McDonald's is a perfect example. They have, I was just talking with, and I just did a presentation to the, their franchisee association. And I'm sitting there realizing that, look, I'm in this room with a bunch of millionaires. And in some cases, people who are worth well into the nine figures. And, you know, they make a lot of money. Um, and it's because that's, you know, what the brand historically has been about. Um, and, um, you know, where they understood they needed their franchisees to do well. And, and, and that's what works. The problem you get into is when the franchisor doesn't care or, you know, or it's just, you know, so caught up in, you know, making their own money I think you should really completely forget that their franchisee needs to make money if they're going, that brand is going to do well. Because if their franchisee makes more money, uh, you make more money through more royalty payments because that franchisee sales are higher. Um, that franchisee is going to want to build more units. And so um, then you make more money on top of that. You grow more. Um, so it just, you know, that's that's how this thing works. And it when it doesn't work that way, it fails. What do you see opportunities now out of curiosity? I mean, you, again, you talk with a lot of operators, a lot of brands. Are there any, any brands out there or sectors that are kind of catching your attention right now or? 
Well, I mean, we're living in a limited service future, right? It's going to be a drive-through world. Um, uh, you know, takeout and delivery is going to be um, important going forward. I mean, I think that, you know, rest, but I also don't think that dine-in is going away. I mean, we've, I mean, people are literally risking their lives to go out to eat at restaurants. Right. I mean, let's face it. Um, you know, so the, 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 the person that can devise a business model that, and, and these are the ones that are going to win are the, the, the people that can build a model that can adapt to both worlds really well. They can have a really good dine-in business, but a menu that uh, travels well. Right. Um, and a model that doesn't rely so heavily on, you know, one or the other. You know, I mean, I think, look, I mean, the beverage business is really good. It needs to be sort of viewed almost in many respects as if, um, as almost incremental business because, you know, I mean, you know, as takeout is becoming more important going forward, I mean, that beverage business can't be as important. Get lesser and lesser. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the person that can devise a concept that can take advantage of both um, is real. And that's, I think, what you're going to see a lot of. You're going to see a ton of development on that front. I said, it seems like, I mean, Texas, and I think you've written about, it. I mean, Texas Roadhouse is a brand that, yeah, pre-COVID almost prided themselves that they they really had no interest in takeout uh, and had to adapt and realize they, they, they couldn't have that same attitude. And it seems like they've really you know, adapted and I think going forward will be much more inclined to embrace takeout as, as a part of their business. In reality. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, without question, they need to, I mean, that, that's, Texas Roadhouse is a perfect example of, you know, that was, or get, people demanded takeout from Texas Roadhouse. You know, they, Ken Taylor is, you know, I mean, he's, he's fantastic in part because he just, he's like, he has in mind what he knows is good for the restaurant business and he's not going to compromise on that. And it, re, it's reflected in, in, in how his chain has operated and how it is succeeded. And he's like, I, I worry about, I'm, you know, they didn't really go after that takeout business. Consumers demanded it. And they started to like, look, they started to say, we got to deal with it. We're never going to do third-party delivery, and they still don't. Mm -hmm. Even with the world in a massive pandemic, they refuse to do it, which, of course, you can do if you're in the financial position that they were in going into the pandemic. They were in very strong position, so they could afford to take that uh, that strategy. Um, uh, but, you know, look, they, they adapted extremely quickly um, to, that, to that business, and now they have a workable business going forward that will protect them, you know, from, from, from a potential loss in dine out in dine in business. Yeah. That's interesting times. I mean, I don't know about okay. you, I'm actually, I'm excited about what's coming. I think we're going to see a lot of adaptations. I mean, you've written about, you know, the changes in the drive-through we just talked about with casual dining. Um, I think the restaurant sector is going, it's going to survive. Like you said, casual dining, dine-in is going to still be there. It's, mm -hmm. just, it's so much a fabric of what we, what we do and of our oh, yeah. lives. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see where the, where we are, you know, a year, two years, three years from now. I think there'll be some, some great adaptations in reality. Oh yeah. I think five years, we're going to look at, um, a bigger industry, an industry. I think that by within five years, the industry will have fully recovered right. and is growing again. So we'll be back not only to pre pandemic levels, but we'll be above that. But I think that the industry is going to look very, very much different, you know, not so much, I mean, 
you know, it's not going to be as evident in, in the fast food business where it's already sort of built towards takeout. Although you're going to see a lot more flexible designs and fancier drive-throughs and no seat arrangements and that sort of thing. But I think that it's the full service and especially the independent business that's going to be really interesting to go for. The independent restaurant is the most, you know, it's the, it, fundamentally it's the most vulnerable because they're small and right and they can easily go out of business. But there's always somebody willing to step in and open a restaurant. And that is, a and, you know, as, as people say, you know, pe people are still, are never going to stop opening restaurants. And, I, and what the independent restaurant fabric looks like within five, six, seven years is going to be fascinating because it's going to be really influenced by what's happened over these last nine months. Well, and some of the, I mean, even, you know, opening an independent restaurant in a cloud kitchen or a ghost kitchen, I mean, mm -hmm. that opportunity oh, yeah. to be out there to open a restaurant far cheaper and, you know, maybe it is a virtual type type concept. Yeah. So it could be interesting. So, well, yeah. very cool. It's I, I, always great catching up with you. I oh, mean, yeah. Always. Very, you're as uh, knowledgeable as anybody in the restaurant business. So it's always great catching up with you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Be well.